This episode is sponsored by Voyager and MyBookie. Stay tuned to hear more about them later in the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, and this is the Wolf of All Streets podcast. Today's guest is the CEO of both FTX Crypto Exchange and Alameda Research. Sam Bakeman-Fried, better known as SBF, has become a legend in the crypto space, known for his talent in arbitrage trading, building fascinating tech, and creating top-of-the-line trading systems. Today, my plan is to find out how SBF built one of the top exchanges and grew a trading firm that moved up to $1.5 billion a day. I'm also interested in hearing an insider view on how whales and big money trade this nascent market and his thoughts on the future of our space. Uh, Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for waking up uh, early for this. Of course. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on. So uh, before we get into the questions, once again, you're listening to the Wolf of All Streets podcast, which airs twice a week. I talk to your favorite personalities in the world of Bitcoin, finance, trading, art, music, sports, and politics. The show is powered by Blockworks Group, a media company with over 20 podcasts in the network. And if you like the podcast and follow me on Twitter, check out my website, join my newsletter. You can do both those things at thewolfofallstreets.io. So Sam, I have to ask you, uh, do you ever get a headache or neck pain from that epic uh, six screen setup you have? Yeah. I definitely, I mean, it's not, not terrible, but like certainly some days it's like, you know, neck doesn't feel exactly great. And I'm kind of like dreading if anything exciting is happening on like the left screen. I sort of like, I'm like, Oh God, like, I don't, I don't really want to do that. Hopefully I have a copy of that tab open on the right screen. That'd be better. So, so, uh, you know, obviously you have a lot going on when, when you're trading actively, what are you actually looking at on those six screens? Yeah, I mean, it really depends, but I think that sort of, you know, the general answer to your question um, is what are other people looking at? Like, what's the world looking at and what's the world doing? And I think that like, you know, maybe something that's worth kind of giving on as, as, as a little bit of, of background is like, let's say that you're doing arbitrage, right? That's your goal, you know? And so what that means is basically you're looking to buy a Bitcoin for $10 and you're looking to sell it for $11. Um, and, uh, you know, you see it's whatever it's offered at, at or 10,000, whatever, you know, $10,000 on Coinbase, bid at 11,000 on, on Bitstamps, you buy it on Coinbase, send it to Bitstamp, you sell it, you make $1,000, right? That's sort of like, you know, really kind of the, the like clearest ARB you can do basically in crypto. Um, and then you can ask a question, which is why? Like, why is there an arbitrage? And like, I don't know, maybe the answer is like, I don't know, there just is, but, but maybe you can do better than that, you know? And may, maybe you can get some intuition for like why and when there would be arbitrages. And in particular, um, you know, what you sort of have to ask yourself is like, who's on the other side of that, right? Who's the person who's buying at $11,000 on Bitstamp, right? Like, let's say it's 10,000, you know, Who's, who's, who's sort of like doing the other side of this? And probably the answer is it's someone who really wants to buy Bitcoin, right? It's, it's not someone who's like, I like doing anti-arbitrage. I like losing money. That's not what's going on. They're like, <laughs> I think Bitcoin's going to be worth $20,000 in a month. And right now I can buy it for 11. So yeah, I'm going to buy it, right? And so what that means is that like arbitrage usually comes because of excess demand, because there's some place where there's too much demand relative to the supply. And maybe that's like Bitcoins on Bitstamp, just everyone's buying it. So many of them that there's just like basically no Bitcoins left on Bitstamp. People bought them all. And then like, I don't know, like what, who's going to be selling if they're like, no one can sell if there are no Bitcoins. 
and it just left like some stale offer like 10% rich. And that's the next best thing to buy, right? And that's sort of like how it happens. Um, and, you know, I think like more generally, what, what you sort of see is like, whenever supply and demand have a big mismatch, whenever there's a lot more demand than supply somewhere, um, the thing just kind of blows out a little bit, right? Because it's usually like there are enough sellers. And what that means is if you're an arbitrageur, that's where you want to be looking, right? Is to like go find where there's way too much demand because uh, that's probably a thing that there's like, that's out of line. Um, and then what you do is you provide liquidity to it by selling there, you know, you go pick up some Bitcoins from Coinbase, carry them over to Bitstamp, drop them there and sell. And that does, you know, an arbitrage. It also provides liquidity to those buyers, right? Like you're getting more Bitcoins over there for people to buy. And in turn, that sort of starts to close down this spread, right? Like you're kind of relieving this pressure or at least counterbalancing it. And so kind of doing an arbitrage is the same act as providing liquidity, which is the same act as getting rid of arbitrages, as making it so there are none left, you know? Um, and so then the question is like, what do you want to be looking at if you're doing arbitrage? The answer is in my story, it's, it's Bitstamp. You want to be staring at Bitstamp Bitcoins. That's what everyone's buying. And sort of more generally, it's whatever the crypto world is trading, whatever they're looking at, whatever they're, they're really excited about, that's going to be where all the demand is. And so that's going to be where all the good trading is going to be. Um, and so, you know, like in, uh, you know, in July, there's a lot of Uniswap, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, having up on-chain metrics, you know, Uniswap, MetaMask, things like that. Um, crypto goes through periods where it's all futures. Like what's everyone doing? They're all trading Bitcoin futures, right? And like then what, what you have up, you have up like a lot of Bitcoin futures books and you're looking at premiums and liquidations and, and you know, things like that, right? And like, and so to some extent, it's, it's really reflective of what is going on in crypto and what people are doing. Um, in general, sort of beyond that, beyond just the like, you know, well, whatever, sort of looking at what, what the world's looking at, um, you know, when, when, when sort of people that only are trading, often they'll have up, you know, a lot of tooling. So I'll have like scrolling list of all trades that are going, that we're doing, you know, list of balances and positions, capital management tooling, you know, Slack, alerts, um, various monitors uh, of our positions and things. And basically just a, a lot of things that like, you know, seem silly if you're just trading on one exchange because exchanges show it all to you right there on the homepage. But if you're trading on 30, it's sort of like, it was overwhelming and you need to build things to summarize what's going on. When you're doing arbitrage, I mean, I did it all the time, just even as a retail trader in 2017, yep. I was primarily doing Litecoin just between Bittrex, Binance and Coinbase. Oh but yeah, Litecoin keep, on Coinbase was insane in like 2017. It was amazing. And, you know, obviously the opportunities would strike, but if you didn't have both Bitcoin and Litecoin on right. all three exchanges, by the time you could send the Bitcoin, it was, the, the, the spread was gone, that 5% premium or whatever was dead. So as doing arbitrage, do you find that you need to have both either a Tether or dollars and Bitcoin on every exchange? Because as you said, yeah. that opportunity is only there for a second. And if you need to actually send them around, usually the opportunity is gone by the time it happens, right? Uh, that's absolutely right. And it's a big difference between crypto and the rest of finance. And in the rest of finance, right, if you're an HFT firm and you see Apple's priced differently on NYSE and NASDAQ, right, you just like buy a NYSE and sell NASDAQ and you're done. Like, that's just the same thing. It's not like, did you have the Apple on NYSE? Like, it's not even a meaningful statement, right. you know? There's like, they're all through clearing firms that clear it to the same thing anyway. 
But in crypto, a Bitcoin and Bitstamp and a, a Bitcoin on Binance and Bitcoin on Coinbase are not the same thing. And you try and move them around to make them the same thing by paying some money and waiting some time and hoping that they, you know, that you have withdrawal limits for it and shit like that. But but no, like someone's trying to buy a Bitstamp Bitcoin, you can't sell them a Coinbase Bitcoin. <laughs> you got to get it over there first. And so, as you said, yeah, it's like often a lot of this is capital management. It's like, oh, fuck, here's like 70 wallets you have to be managing. And you have to have like, you know, a little bit of Litecoin in all of them or you're not going to have it where you need it. Right. I, I also found that uh, I tried to get cute and trade on foreign exchanges and then I could never get my money out or get money basically oh, anywhere. <laughs> I even tried with, I, was it Zimbabwe at the time that had the insane premium, but obviously <laughs> that didn't work out. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, yeah. there's. I think you, you kind of touched on it that the concept is extremely simple, but actually making it happen, especially with size, I would imagine is extremely complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And just everything breaks when you try it for size. And I think it's like an underrated fact that like you used something like, holy shit, yeah, I did it. Obviously, if I had a billion dollars, I'd make a trillion dollars a day of profit. Like why isn't like Bill Gates worth more money than the world has? And okay, partially the answer is like, there's just not that much volume in crypto to support, you know, a quadrillion dollars or whatever, but but also partially the answer is so many things break when you try and size up, right? Like you try and go from, you know, a dollar to a Bitcoin to a hundred Bitcoins, you start hitting withdrawal limits on exchanges, banks start getting unhappy with your wire transfers to crypto exchanges. Um, exchanges start taking forever to process your withdrawals gonna have enough in the hot wallets. Um, you start having real impact on like the specific exchanges you're doing. You start hitting foreign uh, FX transfer limits from some countries. And it's just like thing after thing after thing, you realize like to scale it, like, oh boy, there's a lot of operational work you're going to need to do. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a nightmare, which kind of touches on the next point I think is really interesting and something that we don't often get much insight on. As I said, Alameda, I mean, you're trading sometimes $1.5 billion a day, right? <laughs> yep. This market's not very big. Right. So yeah. if, you, if, you, if you heard BlackRock or something say that, you wouldn't be surprised, but it's a, it's a bit of a eye popper when you talk about it in crypto. So how can you do that without absolutely destroying the market? <laughs> it's a really good question. And the answer the, that's, is that you can't just do one thing. You know, you can't just be like, today I'm buying Litecoin on Bitstamp because they like, I can't even do it, let alone do it in a way that's an arbitrage. So, um, Really, the answer is like, uh, I'm part of this is like cycling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But part of it is like finding all the places that there's sort of too much demand and not enough supply and starting to supply as many of them as possible. And, and you just can't do it all at once. You can't do it all in one place. And in order to scale this up at some point, you have to be doing 12 trades at once because there's just, you know, it, that's like a few percent of all volume you know, you're going to have really serious impact if you're 20% of volume. You can't only be doing like a few percent of all trades or something like that. So, so is Alameda strictly when you're trading? I know you guys are obviously doing uh, liquidity providing and market making and then arbitrage, but are you guys ever just sitting around and, you know, taking straight up, you know, buy low, sell high, looking at a chart, uh, you know, sourcing right. where they're might be engineering liquidity and, and really just playing the kind of swing moves. There is some things like this, but the, like, I, I think the thing that, that really we think about when we're, when we're thinking about actual positions and deltas is what's our edge here? Like, why do we think that this is a trade that we would make money doing, you know, and 
not just that there's money to be made doing it, but that's sort of a trade that fits us. That like, you know, if it's sort of like, yeah, maybe there's money to be made doing it. Anyone can do it. This is like what everyone's looking at. It also sort of just feels like, uh, it's like, I don't know, this doesn't seem like a competitive advantage. Odds are pretty unlikely that there's a great trade here. Maybe it's marginal. Unless we just, it seems like, okay, yeah, obviously, like someone's buying a billion dollars of the, of like, you know, ETH Classic today. Yeah, everyone should be doing the same trade. Like, yeah, of course. But, but you sort of like put that aside and, and it's just, you know, like, uh, what's our strength and why do we think this is a good trade? And there come times, you know, there come times, and I think kind of the clearest example of this is when there's, something we have a fundamental view on, you know? And there are some tokens that you could imagine doing this for. I think the easiest is like an exchange token, right? Like if you had some exchange token and there's like a buy and burn for like 80% of the tokens fully diluted market cap every year, and you think it's not a flash in the pan, like this is sustained volume, it's sort of like, like I don't know, fuck market sentiment. It doesn't matter anymore. Like right. you just buy this token. <laughs> it's just, just good, good economics. Literally everyone yeah. sells their tokens, <laughs> like it's still good, right? That's obviously an extreme example, but you know there are times when we feel like we actually have an edge in analyzing like a token, um, and 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 then sometimes we will, but it's not sort of the core wheelhouse, and those times are not the norm; it's the exception. That makes sense. So I know that you're. I mean, you have a long background, and you've told that story before, so probably not not worth going through the entire thing. But you did. Coming out of MIT, I know you were a phys- physicist of sorts, and then uh, decided to go into finance. Uh, you're right, and I believe you were Jane Street. So, what was yep. the experience like trading legacy markets there, um, where you didn't have a lot of these inefficiencies, maybe, and it was just sort of a different market? And what did you, I guess, learn there, and how is it different? You know, and how, how have you been able to apply that to, to crypto? Yeah. So. Um I, it's, you know, there's sort of senses in which sometimes it's very different, but in the end, you're always looking for the same type of thing. In the end, you're always looking for the inefficiencies. And sometimes there are different types of inefficiencies, right? But you're still looking for them. And and so like, you know, maybe it's not the things that it is in crypto, right? But that doesn't mean it's not anything. And so maybe, you know, if, so I've never really worked at an HFT firm, but for, for people who do, right, the sort of inefficiencies that they think about often are, you know, things like, uh, oh, okay, like this exchange has a higher maker rebate than this other exchange by like a fraction of a basis point. And like, there's not enough size provided on the offer. So it's just like generally good to provide on the offer here. That The inefficiency I'm exploiting is like, understanding the you know the microstructure of the exchange latencies and fees and things like that and and you know maybe it's understanding look all the order flows coming on amex right now that's where everyone's buying and there's uh you have priority if you're providing on the same exchange that the buyers buying on although in inequities you don't need to if you provide on IC and someone buys on nasdaq they can't buy through your offer um but they can they can lift up to your offer on their exchange first. You're like, okay, all the order flows on, on Amex, so it's a good trade to provide on Amex because that's how we get the order flow. And, and, and whatever, you sort of like, it's a different type of, of inefficiency, but it, it's still like a similar type of thing in the end that you're looking for. And you know, I was trading international ETFs on Wall Street before this, and frankly, they're one of the messier things on Wall Street. And so they're not as messy as crypto, but they're, they're like one of the more crypto-like things. And, and why is that? It's because 
what is an international ETF? So it's a fund. It's you know a wrapper that owns a lot of different stocks. Um, you know, there's for instance, you know, EWY, which owns whatever, you know, 50 different Korean companies, little bits of each. Um, and it's a US listed ETF that holds non-US companies. And the key thing here is that as long as you stay on US equity exchanges, there are a lot of things that just hold. You're, you're sort of like, it, it's like regularized in various ways. As soon as you say like the whole world, anything can happen if you're like vague enough about it, you know? And you're like, all right, shit, like now I got to go buy a bunch of Nigerian stocks. And like all these thoughts you had about like efficient markets and like Wall Street and all the infrastructure works well, that was not tuned to a frontier markets ETF, you know, that was tuned to America and like, you know, maybe Germany, you know, or Japan, right? So when you look at more global stock markets, you do get to see things that look a little bit crypto-like. And I... And, and so I think that there actually were some similarities there. And and there's actually some sort of surprising things that some stock markets do. Like crypto exchange fees are insane compared to US equity exchange fees in some sense, right? Like crypto exchange fees are like five basis points, right? And then like US equity exchange fees are like, uh, what, like a third of a basis point or something like that. Um, I, do you know what like, Korean or like Hong Kong exchange fees are? I don't. It's like 20 basis points. Really? So it turns out there's just actually a lot of countries in the world where their actual stock markets, like the real official ones, actually just charge extremely high fees. And um, and it really fucking distorts the market. I mean, it's, it sort of like does what you'd expect, right? Like you'll just get these gigantic like markets with like no volume trading because it's like you have to pay huge fees to cross the spread and spot gets super liquid and instruments that don't have those fees get super liquid compared to them. So in Korea, options don't have that same fee structure. This is a run, one of the reasons Korean options trade so much is that you can like synthetically trade the stocks without paying their you know, stamp tax or whatever. Hmm. Um, and so when you expand globally, it actually does look more like crypto than when you kind of stay within, uh, you know, stay within uh, FANG stocks on, you know, U.S. exchanges, right? Of course, high-frequency trading always—it's well above my pay grade, but always perplexed me because you would see or hear rumor of these firms spending millions and millions of do- dollars just for like a one second or a fraction oh, of a second. Edge. Absolutely, and if you think about it, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And here's sort of the toy model: is like someone has an offer out to sell Apple at two hundred dollars, right? And markets are going up and up and up, and like every other stock's up, like every no stocks are up. And like, you know, Apple's like 199.99 at 200 is like the bid and the offer. And at some point, markets tip up a, t- tick up another basis point. And every HFT firm in the world is like, okay, now that offer in Apple is cheap. Now you want to buy it because like the whole world's just worth like two bips more than it was a second ago. Like Apple's now worth more than 200 and there's just a fucking race. And it's like the first person to send the order, take it, gets the order. And the second person gets fucking nothing. And so you often, this isn't true of all the trades that they do buy, but some subset of trades do basically come down to winner takes all in speed. And if you can get, it's not about having speed on human time scales or even on news time scales. It's just having speed that's faster than the guy next to you. And if that's a microsecond faster than them, if the exchange actually can detect microsecond differences of the matching engines that 
sophisticated, then the guy who's a make faster might win every time, you know, and get like, you know, 20% of the volume just for that. I mean, I guess if two people are trying to outrun a lion, you don't need to outrun the lion. You yeah, just need to outrun yeah. the other guy. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. It makes total sense. So you started an exchange. Uh, yep. Was that because you saw that there was an obvious picks, you know, picks and shovels sort of opportunity here that, that the fees were much higher than in, in other markets and that this was an easy way to capitalize on, on what you were already doing? Yeah. It basically like, you know, we had a lot of know-how. We had a lot of context. Um, exchanges are huge businesses in crypto, way, way bigger than in traditional finance. They're sort of like conglomerates that do lots of things. Combination of matching engine, risk engine, prime broker, uh, product designer, listing engine, like it's sort of everything rolled into one. Um, derivatives in particular are like more than half the volume in crypto uh, and in the rest of the world. So, so it's a huge space. There are actually not very many of them when, when FTX, when we first started building FTX in, in like right around the turn of 2019, um, there's like three. And it's sort of it, collectively making up half the volume in the world in crypto. And um, so, okay, so there's a big opportunity, not that many players in it. We knew the space well, we knew the product well. And I don't know if, if, if you like remember crypto derivatives exchanges in like tw late 2018, it's not a pretty site. No, like they they were they had serious fucking issues. Yeah, hundreds I mean, of the, millions the, of dollars I mean, of clawbacks. It was like, yeah, they still. I mean, they still overload they still to do. this day. It's like, <laughs> um, they they still do. They're even worse then. And it's just like, at some point, we're basically just like, all right, this is fucking frustrating. Like these products are not up to snuff, and um, you know, like we can do better than that. Like if that's the bar we need to meet. We can pass that bar. We can know? stay online when people want to trade. Yeah. It's right. Exactly. It's like, you know, what fraction of market moves are we offline for? Like less than 80%. Like, good job. You know? <laughs> and so it's sort of like, at some point, we're just sort of like, all right, this is like, we actually think we can do better than this. Um, and there's this big open question of like, will we ever get a single customer? Like, doesn't matter what product we build. If literally no one ever goes to our website, then it's, yeah. it's useless. And like, I had never done a customer facing thing before. So it's like a big unknown. And basically we, what happened, we just sort of sat, sat there and did some math, not a lot, not real math, like sort of firmer estimates of like, how much is this worth if, if, if it goes very well? And what are the odds that we can solve this? Can we ever get a customer problem? You know? And like, when we're thinking about what are the odds of it, like, uh, you know, we're not trying to say is it 17.3% or 18.1%. Like we're sort of like, all right, is it like 1% or 10% or 50%, you know, like yeah. just very roughly. And, and we sort of thought about it and we're like, all right, 1% is too low. Definitely more than 1% chance we can figure out how to get customers. 70% too high. Definitely not confident we will. Um, and, I, and I think like had a range of numbers between like five and 30% um, that we like figure out the things we didn't know how to do. And sort of like, all right, whatever, take 20-ish percent, 15%, whatever, something like that, you know, and multiply that by like how cool it would be if we got there. And just like, all right, that's a big number. And sort of like, how big is that number? And we're like, big enough that it doesn't matter if it's 8% instead of 12%. And like, it doesn't matter for a little bit off in one of the parameters. It doesn't change the answer. And the answer is we should go for this. Only a trader would approach opening a business <laughs> like that or a professional poker player. 
you effectively just yep. said that the that that it was a losing a, a theoretically a you know higher chance of losing the bet, but that the pot odds justified the justified yeah. pushing. Exactly. Um, uh, that's yeah. fascinating. I've never heard someone describe uh, their thought process of starting <laughs> a business like that. Like we think that there's only like a 15, 20% chance that we'll succeed, but if we do, it's going to be insane and it's totally worth it. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, that's a, it's amazing. I, yeah. It was, um, I, it was, I mean, obviously it worked and we're really excited about that. And I think it also really emboldened us to use that logic going forward and, and to sort of feel like, look, like, you know, this sort of works. Like, yeah, you can sort of do this math and it tells you numbers. Like, are these all bullshit? Like, no, you know, if you do, if you do it right, it might tell you you'll probably fail and you should do it anyway. And, and maybe it's just right about that, you know, that, that when you see that, it, it, if you're careful about it, often the answer is just, yeah, then go for it again and maybe we'll fail again, you know, so be it. Um, but, uh, but that like, there isn't sort of this mysterious force that means that anything that seems like it's not, that, that's unlikely to succeed is in fact definitely not going to succeed. Like that force doesn't exist. In fact, if it seems possible but unlikely, it's possible but unlikely and possible sometimes enough. Clearly it was in your case. Uh, yeah. Um, and it's, you've basically achieved it in about a year and a half, right? I mean, since you actually yeah. launched the exchange and you built it very quickly. Yeah, it was, I think that's definitely, I mean, obviously building things quickly is sort of our, our calling card in a lot of senses. Um, and, and, you know, always has been. Um, and I think that like people sometimes ask us like, what's your secret? you know, what do you do is you, you show us this dev, but it's just actually five devs in a trench coat stacked on top of each other. <laughs> like, like, and, and sort of the answer, like our weird, confusing answer is, I don't know, dude, there's no secret. It's, there isn't like, oh yeah, like no one else is using Rust, but they haven't thought of that one. Like, no, it's just sort of like, why is everyone so slow? Like, why is everyone else not doing this? And I think the answer is like, you like dig into the organizations like, oh yeah, of course. It's sort of like, you know, Malthusian and dysfunctional and Malachian in the way that like big corporations, everyone describes them as. Like everyone who's ever been a big corporation has nothing but mediocre things to say about it. You know, mm -hmm. and it's just sort of like, does it feel like you're operating at maximum efficiency when you're in a 2000 person organization? The answer is no, it doesn't. Like obviously doesn't. And then like, what happens if that isn't the case? What happens if you like get rid of all the bullshit like, might it be a lot faster? And it says, yes. Is that just because it's you and you can make an efficient decision and like you're on top of the market? So obviously you see something that's bubbling on Uniswap, you're starting to see volume and you just literally walk down to your devs and say, I want this trading in 48 hours. Yeah. Because that's that, what it that seems long, like. That's what it seems like from the outside. I mean, sometimes it's not 48 hours, right? Sometimes right, it's like 20 minutes. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, and like we have senses of how long things take. And sometimes we're like, shit, this coin just went up a lot. Should we list it right now? Like people are looking at it, you know, and it's, it's a thing you can do. Um, and, and so I think that is a piece of it, but I think there's another piece of it, which isn't captured by that too, which is that like, um, you know, if you try that in a lot of places, the devs were like, yeah, whatever, fuck you. You know, that, that's sort of like the response you get. And, and they're like, whatever, I got things to do. I'll, I'll get around to it. You're like, no, it's a surgeon. They're like, well, my thing's urgent too. And you just sort of like, I don't know what you do. Do you tell them they have to do it? And then they're like pissed. So they like, like, you know, and, and like, 
I, I think what, what we sort of try very hard to do is to put ourselves in a situation where that's not going to happen, to put ourselves in a situation where we're all just naturally usually going to agree. And if we don't agree, we'll hear each other out and then say, yeah, okay, we hear all, understand all the arguments. I don't know who's right. Let's flip a coin. And it's actually pretty rare that we strongly disagree and can't resolve it and make whatever sacrifices are necessary to be able to be in that position and big sacrifices are necessary. And the biggest by far is sacrificing the ability to grow your headcount extremely quickly. Like if you want to be in that position, you can't have hired 50 people in the last month that you don't know. There's like no chance that everyone's going to be on the same page if, 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 if that, that's how your hiring works. Um, and it's a lot easier if there's like seven of you working on something and you've been working together for two years and trust each other and you both have deep subject knowledge and learn how each other think and communicate, you know, and there are costs to that model. There are costs to growing headcount more slowly, uh, but there are benefits too. So the benefit obviously is that you're lean and fast. And I would say the downside is probably that you all sleep on the floor in the office for an hour. Right. <laughs> that, 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 that's, yeah. I mean, that's definitely a piece of this and uh, it's um, it's hard to hide. Like there's sort of, if a company's big enough, you can always hide, you know, as long as you're not egregious, you like, don't obviously not be at work when you're definitely supposed to. And like, maybe you're not going to be like employee of the year, but like, it'll kind of be okay. You know, and you can't do that at like a, you know, here. Sick of paying ridiculous fees to trade crypto? It's time you try Voyager. It's hands down my favorite place to buy and trade crypto and it's 100% commission free. Voyager gives you easy access to more than 40 top crypto assets and you can instantly transfer cash from your bank accounts so you never miss a trading opportunity. Even better, you can now automatically earn interest on your crypto holdings. Currently, they are offering 6.5% interest on Bitcoin and 9.5% on USDC. Yes, you heard that correctly, 9.5% interest. And there are no limits or lockups, so your funds always stay liquid. Find out why so many people are making the switch to Voyager. Visit investvoyager.com or search for Voyager in the iTunes or Google Play store and get $25 in free Bitcoin when you use the promo code SCOTT25. That's scott two five. If you gamble with Bitcoin, you need a sportsbook that doesn't just slap the word crypto on their homepage and call it a day. That's why you need my bookie. They're the only sports book capable of taking your Bitcoin obsession and turning it into huge cash prizes. Do you want 100% bonus on your first three deposits? No deposit fees, huge deposit limits, and withdrawals processed within 24 hours? My bookie's got you covered. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Do you want to know what's really going to piss off all those people who told you to stop talking about Bitcoin 10 years ago? My bookie's crypto rewards program. Receive cash back, free bets, huge bonuses, and exclusive promotions simply for using crypto. One deposit makes you a crypto rewards member for life. That means cash back, exclusive offers, and more forever. But we're still not done. My bookie knows that your love of crypto is matched only by your hatred of credit card fees. So they decide to issue back those credit card fees in the form of crypto rewards. And they're doubling it. So if you incur $10 in credit card fees, my bookie will offer you a crypto reward of $20. Deposit with Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, or Litecoin with ease, and withdraw with Bitcoin just as simply. Put your crypto where your mouth is and sign up at MyBookie. And when you do, use promo code SCOTT to receive a 100% bonus on your first three deposits. Bet with the best, bet with MyBookie. How do you balance both companies? I mean, obviously, if you're actively trading for, for Alameda, 
and something comes up that needs to be handled quick, quickly on FTX, how is that something that you can possibly manage? So um, there's, I mean, I don't really trade much for Alameda anymore. That's, uh, you know, we have a, a bunch of traders and I'm, um, you know, spending basically all my time on the FTX side. Um, but I think more generally, there, there are just a shit ton of things going on here. And there's, I mean, a ton of initiatives within FTX. There's building out Serum. Um, and then there's just like a ton of investments. And like, yeah, there's a lot going on each day. And it, it's, it's a lot. It can be over, you know, it can be overwhelming. And it's sort of deal with it. I don't know. I don't, I like, like sort of my answer is get through as much as you possibly can. And, you know, there's a limit how much you can get through, but it's a lot. And, you know, the more that you put in front of yourself, um, the more you can take on. And I think a lot of this is just about being ambitious about how much you can do. Not like completely reckless, but like, you know, it's sort of like if, if you try and hold yourself to the standard of figuring out how far you, how fast you can push things, you end up pushing things a lot faster than if you hold yourself to the standard of like, are you moving at least okay speed? You know? Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So, so you said when you were building FTX that it was sort of a necessity in the market that you saw that other exchanges were just subpar. You know, you said if we can be online 80% of the moves and that's improvement. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, that, that gets you to where we are today, right? But th this yep. is still a small market, right? I mean, relative to, to any yeah. other market. And so what does the future of, I mean, FTX specifically, but what are we lacking in crypto exchanges, crypto platforms uh, that we're going to need to really take it to an institutional grade level to accommodate for the huge money that's inevitably headed our way? So it's a really good question. And I sort of shocked when I thought through some pieces of this. There are ways in which... I, uh, there are sort of ways in which crypto isn't as much smaller as you might think. And as an industry, its market cap is not that big, right? Its market cap is like roughly the market cap of like Microsoft or something, right? right. Like it's, um, when you look at trading volumes, it's like very large trading volume to market cap ratio. Um, you know, and, and and like liquidation to market cap ratio is off the charts in crypto. Like it's just like there is there's sort of nothing comparable. Um, there are like ways in which crypto has been pushing itself very fast in terms of exchanges in particular and nothing else. Basically, um, so that's sort of one answer. Um, but you know what does it mean to scale up the industry like what's necessary there's just a lot of things and you know technology is one but it's not the big one like that that's a solvable problem if you need to the bigger things are like well why are you scaling up like where is the pressure to scale up coming from and i think often people are like we want to scale crypto up to the whole financial ecosystem or something like that and i do too and i think that's where a lot of the upside is but you have to have demand for that, you know? I sort of feel like it should happen. That doesn't mean someone's currently offering to pay me a lot of money to make it happen. 
And right. it doesn't mean customers are actually going to use it right now just because you kind of think it should be there and that they should want it. And, and then you sort of have to figure out why. Like, why there's sort of this, like, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like anyone who's used, like, a sophisticated crypto exchange and then who has tried to trade on, like, E-Trade comes away feeling like, okay, like, whatever, there's a lot of differences and a lot of ricketiness in crypto. There's just a lot of things it does better also. Like, like it's sort of like, oh, I like, oh, God, it has, like, order books and lots of order types. And, like, you can get funds on and off in lots of different ways. And you have control over all of that. And, like, it's open 24-7. And it's just, like, all these things that are just, like, okay, obviously you want that. You get margin, you get, like, cross-margin, whatever. It's sort of, like, actually a lot of ways in which it's, like, pushing forward. And, like, a lot of fintech tech is sort of, like, I don't know, you compare, like, the FTX app to Robinhood in terms of like what you can uh, do with it. And yeah. just like, it's, it's a, so, right. So, so then the question is like, all right, like, why isn't like what, what's going on here? And, and I think the answer is like, I don't know, the world's complicated, but, but also there's like, you know, there's a lot of things that have to lock into place. You have to figure out what the, like what the role is you're playing, how that fits into regulatory infrastructures. Are you trying to appeal to, to, to like retail, like, is this like integrating with businesses or like retail traders or Wall Street or pension funds or what? And so if they each have their own requirements and they each have their own zeitgeist and, and, and for each one, you have to sort of like needle at them, you know, and get them to feel like, fuck, we really want to be able to do this, you know? Yeah. It's not that it's not doable, but, but it doesn't just automatically happen for no reason, you know? And so I think like there's a ton of potential there. There's also a lot of things that need to fall into place for many of these like expansions of the crypto ecosystem to actually happen in a big way. I mean, you've said openly that you want to have a billion people trading on FTX, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's worlds it, apart from awesome. where we are. It's, it's so far away, but I also think you have to want that. Like, it's like, of course. you know, what's the biggest upside? Of course, it's a billion people. Like, if it's not, you're sort of like definitely not, you know, as, as, as sort of ambitious as it could be. And, and then I think you start to ask like, okay, what, what would we need to do to get there? And there's like some ways in which it's nothing and some which is in which an enormous number of things. And I think like demand is just the biggest piece here, frankly. Throw everything else out. Like you got to have people who you have a service and people want to use it. Right. So you don't need to scale ahead of demand. You'll just take it as it comes basically. Yeah. And that's not so you completely ignore the ability to scale. Like that is important too, but like it's one of them is just much more important. Like the number of businesses that have died because they never had demand is like 99%. And the number of businesses that have died because they couldn't scale is like 30%. Those add up to more than one because many businesses it's just overdetermined that they fail. Like they, yeah. they can't scale to their tiny customer base. Um, but, but it's just like almost every story you hear of like a friend starting a business, it's just like they never had a single paying customer. Like that's yeah. a real problem. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, okay. Business. <laughs> they, they weren't ready to, to, to run a, a multinational, but also they couldn't get their friend's parents to buy their product first. So like, let's start there. Yeah, I guess we can throw out the ones that were just patently bad ideas. <laughs> right, okay. Interested. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so, I mean, talking about scaling and, and being, you know, a, a solid exchange and just a product that people could use. I mean, we were all here March 12th, right? We saw the, the absolute liquidation cascade on BitMEX and what happened. How do we avoid events like that in the future where, where literally we have like $15 million yeah. liquidations firing into an empty, you know, order it's, book? 
terrifying. And I mean, it's really terrifying and, and harrowing. And I think if you're not harrowed by what happened on on you know March 13th, I, I think you didn't see exactly how bad it almost got. Yeah. It got bad, but it honestly turned out kind of okay, right? Oh, look, I'm not saying it's a good day. Well, it went but, from 6,000 down and was back at 6,000 by the time I woke up and I never even knew it happened, so. <laughs> right, so, so it's like, okay, things were down a lot, you know, around that time. I'm not, not trying to like dispute that, but, but, you know, crypto made it out and like without that many scars, all things considered, um, at least not long-term ones. But if like Bitcoin hit what, 4K at the bottom, I think. Yeah, like 38, yeah. Yeah, what if it hit 3K? Um, See, it would have gone to zero on some exchanges. That's a problem is that it wasn't that far from going to zero. There's like no bids. There's, yeah, a, I mean, yeah. there's no bits and the momentum here is fucking terrifying because the problem is that as it goes down you just liquidate more and more people and it goes down more and more and that triggers more and more liquidations and what happened sort of the core thing that happened that caused this whole fucking shit show um is that there, there so there's, there's sort of this golden parameter that governs a lot of trading not a lot but a number of trading situations and what it is, is basically um, whenever there's a momentum effect, it's like change in selling pressure for every percent that the asset goes down divided by uh, number of bids per percent. And whenever that gets above one, it means that you have an exponential effect either way. But instead of exponentially dying down, like instead of like, a, 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 you know, instead of going up, you know, a sort of like uplift exponentially tailing off and converging, it just exponentially grows. And same thing downside, there's this point, what's happening, this point at which going down a percent triggers enough liquidations to cause it to go down more than a percent. And then just like diverges. And yeah, we were just like kind of in that situation, like we actually got there. And it's, yeah, like what happens if it goes to zero? And the, the problem is like, it's not like everyone can just ignore it because everyone's liquidated. Like there are things happening in real time. And like, there are all these businesses that don't make sense if Bitcoin's trading at $100, right? Like, like I don't know, like what do you think that the, the like financial situation of a Bitcoin mining firm was when Bitcoin's at 2,500, when it was at 8,000 the previous day? Do you think they're solvent? Like, do you think that their business, do you think their assets are have value when Bitcoin's worth 2,500? Like given the electricity costs, like probably not they're probably levered long. Like they may have just blown like get to this point, like half the industry just blew out. Right. And like what you think those do? miners are probably getting liquidated as well uh, on the, right. beyond the mining part. Right. So yeah, it's just this fucking terrifying position. And um, I, I mean, yeah, I think it, it came not that far from being a lot worse. And so then what can you do to like have that not happen, <laughs> you know? And um, I, Okay, so so like my first answer, I actually think there's like not a great answer to this question. I think there's a lot of shitty answers. There's no, I mean, it's okay. You can ban leverage. Leverage is a cause of, of a lot of this, right? Because a lot of what's going on is that if you get leveraged long, um, then you get liquidated. If no one ever gets liquidated, that cuts off a lot of the momentum effects. So you could try and ban leverage, but to ban leverage, you're basically banning trading. I mean, it's it's like so inefficient if you can't use margin, you can limit leverage, you can limit position size on leverage, you can do things like this, 
Now, of course, you need to get every single venue in the ecosystem to do it, even though it's definitely it's not, like not the regulated. interest. Right. Yeah. Right. So right. you can't really do that. And you know, you can try to get more bids, but like what what's that even mean? Like you're going to your dad and like, can you please bid for Bitcoin? He's gonna be like, no. And if everyone gets liquidated, they don't have the money to buy anyways. (laughs) Exactly. Right. And so it's like, what what you do about this? And really, I think really one thing that you can do, and I think one thing that's really worth worth noting is like, why doesn't this happen in Apple? Now, part of the reason it doesn't happen in Apple is like liquidations aren't aren't really a thing. Like instead, you just sue people for their money, Um, you know, instead of like in in the real world usually. And you don't have to sue them. You like ask them to top up and they do. the other thing is that, you know, let's say that Apple gets liquidated down to, to $5, right? What happens next is like Warren Buffett comes in, just buys all of Apple. Right. And, 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 and he doesn't need to give a fuck about sell pressure or anything. He's like, look, Apple's going to pay out $50 billion in dividends this year from their profits. And I just bought the company for $25. I don't care about anything else. That's a good trade. And, and so because equities are like, kind of tied to this like future expected value of dividend stream thing. There's just like lower arbitrage bounds at the point where it just makes sense to ignore order flow and just buy it and get the dividends. And there's upper arbitrage bounds too. They're all tricky because you can't like if you short sell and it just keeps going up, you get blown out. But there is one upper arbitrage bound for equities, which is the company itself issuing new stock and selling it. At some point, the company is like, okay, our company is not worth this much. Just going to print new, you know, stock and and, and then sell it right <laughs> and that, that and right exactly that sort of like hits the upper bound and so there's sort of like a little bit of things tethering equities within like a you know 50 percent range if they're like theoretical economic fair value that means that these like complete liquidity crises have less impact than they do in like what is bitcoin worth it's sort of i don't know like it's not like you can redeem it for the under like for the dividend there's no fed I mean, no, if you're going yeah. to make the com- com- comparison is that there's no floor, clearly. Like we, yeah. we just talked about it. It could have gone to zero. The Fed is not letting the stock market go to zero. Yeah. And and you see that with bonds also where like when they almost bonds, went to zero. Well, they, they, they almost went to zero. <laughs> but then what did the Fed do? The Fed announced they're going to buy like a trillion dollars of bonds and they all just recovered in 30 seconds. The Fed didn't buy any bonds. They never needed yeah, they to. They just had to all tell people that they were going to. Yeah. And that was enough. And people were like, all right, they're backstopped, you know. Junk bond, double A rating, <laughs> and, and so like, uh, but th- that's not happening with Bitcoin right now, and 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 that's that's sort of like the thing that it's missing, and I think that like the real answer to this long term is getting in a position where it has, you know, the sort of use cases that make it, or the sort of buy-in from enough countries or places or something like that, that it just has value that you can't take away. And it doesn't matter what, what price it's trading at on Huobi. Like, what matters is it's a Bitcoin and, and it's worth something. And if you can buy it for a low price, you just fucking do it. So it's somewhat a divergence between what you would call the, the price and the value, right? Yeah. I mean, is, is that uh, regardless of what the price is? And I think that that's what we're seeing this time. I mean, maybe, you know, the, obviously the most dangerous words in investing are this time. It's different. But 2017 was basically what we're yeah. talking about. Right. I mean, it was a lot of speculative, speculative, speculative FOMO. This time we have hold FOMO, right? I mean, people are FOMOing into Bitcoin so that they can hold it and remove supply from the market because they actually see it as a hedge or they actually see it as, you know, a deflationary asset and important. So it really is a different situation this time. And it kind of is what you're yeah. talking about. 
there's definitely a lot of difference. And like, you know, I certainly feel a lot better about PayPal buying a chunk of Bitcoin for their business than I do about the fact that I just passed someone on the street who was asking their friend where you get the Bitcoin, <laughs> you know, share, share sort of like, Bitcoin. <laughs> right. You're like, which, which one of these do I think is like, uh, sort of like a, you know, real long-term buy-in for the, for, for the thing. Um, that being said, there's some weird stuff going on. I mean, it's, it's not nearly like 2017 and there's a lot more institutional buy-in. It's also a lot of whales. Um, there's a lot of like, it's a lot more concentrated than it was in 2017, a lot less super retail-y. But I mean, people who are like real crypto believers, they're not short right now. They're not hedged and they're not long. They're really fucking long. Right. Like they're, this, it's like, it's been, it's been a long time since I've seen like crypto Twitter be this bullish on average. And it's, you know, it's sort of like, here's a hundred people who are just moving the market along, you know? And I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. And like, I think to some extent, part of me is like, yeah, I think they're right. Like, but part of me is also sort of like, I don't know, that's like, you, you can't just have like, what if the world disagrees with them? Like how, you know, how, how, you know, how, how, how strong are their hands really here? Right. How leveraged are they? And, and I think like, it's, it's, it has some elements of, of that as well of the, of this, um, but, but also has real elements of, of sort of sturdy institutional buy-in in a way that's clearly increasing rather than decreasing. Michael Saylor isn't hurting our cause, right? <laughs> oh yeah. It's, that's, uh, I mean, boy, did that one come out of nowhere also. Yeah. I mean, specifically today that they're going to issue like 400 million yeah. to buy more Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a lot. I mean, it's how much is 400 million move Bitcoin out? It should probably be up. I don't know what, like 5% or something. I don't know. Like it, you, you have impacted by $400 million. Yeah. I guess the question is when do all those people decide it's time to sell the whales right. you're talking about? Because there, there's a point regardless yeah. of your belief in an asset or whatever, where it's just yeah. logic, you logically take profit, right? Look, if Bitcoin trades at $80,000 today, I'm going to fucking sell Bitcoins. I mean, I don't, no. <laughs> it's just like, I don't think it's going to be at that high of a price in, in five days. <laughs> like, you know, at, at some point, even regardless of what you think it's going to be at in a year, you start just like, all right, this is not an efficient market move going on right now. Like there's like a complete lack of liquidity and someone's got to be here selling, you know? Yeah. The, the, the market needs it. It's interesting. I've noticed that you guys have done some uh, in, interesting moves with, with FTX as well. And like other exchanges, I'm, I'm very friendly with the guys at hero. Uh, yep. I, I had Dan Gunsberg was literally the pilot of uh, this podcast nice. that we submitted to Apple and Spotify. I met him at a wedding <laughs> randomly. Nice. Um, and I mean, I saw like this amazing integration that you guys did yeah. with them. I, I would love to hear more about it, but also just the, the kind of thinking of the strategy of working with uh, other exchanges, yeah. you know, to. So I, I'm going to tell two tales and like, in one, it's just like fucking obvious that this should happen and it should happen way more, right? And so like, all right, you, you have customers and you don't know what to do with them. We have a matching engine and like crypto technology suite. What do you think would happen if like we put those two together, you know? And there's like, obviously that should happen. She's like, no doubt, right? And, and I think that like, there's just a lot of examples of this. And I think that like, obviously they didn't have no monetization. They, they did have some and they did have technology, but there's also technology that, that they didn't have and that we did. And so it was sort of like, you know, whatever, there's this economic question, but 
if you're on the same page, you can find some way to fee- to find it out. You know, you can fi- find some way to find the efficient, like a fair price to do whatever the split or trade or whatever is at. And then if it's positive, some it should happen. And like, it's like, yeah, their customers wanted some products. We had the technology for it. Uh, so we should all, you know, and, and they had the customer experience and, and the, the product design. And I think, you know, let's combine those. And so I think like, in some sense, it's just like supernatural. And she's like, yeah, that seems like a positive sum trade. And, and in some sense, the question is like, why isn't that constantly happening? Yeah, why aren't there the like question. a thousand places doing this with each exchange? And the answer is like at once extremely compelling and very unsatisfying. Um, and it's sort of like, here's what often happens when we, we've tried to do this like 10 times. And I think they're the only ones who are alive right now. Maybe there's another one going live soon, but I think they're the only ones right now sort of impressive like it's like a 90 percent failure rate and like what what the fuck um and, and it's always the, they always die the same death and that death is basically like um you know we're like great white labeler platform that sounds great and like cool and then they come back to us and like we need you to build some stuff for us and we're like you're gonna build the gui right and we have the back end they're like well we need more from your back end and we're and already we just get this sinking sitting there. And the problem is that like the FTX front end, it's, there's no back end. It, it just calls our API. Like the FTX front end is just a GUI on the FTX API. And so we're sort of like, so here's the thing, dude. The FTX GUI has, can find everything it needs in our API. And like that just like, okay, so we're already pretty skeptical of where this conversation is going, right? because it's sort of like proof by example. And then, you know, we're just sort of like, all right, like, let's talk about this. What do you want? And they're like, you don't have PL. And we're sort of like, all right, so here's a few things. First of all, if you have everything else, you can reconstruct PL. You can compute it on your side. But putting that aside, even, we do have PL. Here's the endpoint. And they're like, yeah, but that, that's, that's over us. We need over WebSocket. And we're sort of like, I, just to clarify this, WebSocket, the point of this, this is, so REST is when you basically send a message to the API and you're like, hey, could I please have this information? They give it back. You know, like I want to know the last price of this um, or I want to send an order. Um, WebSocket is a streaming data feed. And it's great if you want to like get all pricing updates for a market and just streams. Anytime there's a trade, it'll tell you about the, the new updates. Or like, all right, so PL to be clear, you're this monthly PL and you want it every 50 milliseconds. Is that right? Like your complaint is that you can only query your monthly PL every second instead of every 50 milliseconds. And they're sort of like, we want it over WebSocket. And we're sort of like, I don't get why you would want that. This is not helpful. Just use the rest endpoint. It's fine. And they're like, we need you to work with us. And we're sort of like, look, we can make this endpoint, but like, I don't get why you want this. And I'm kind of worried this is not going to be the last time we are in this position. Like, (laughs) what are you going to come back to us with tomorrow? And of course there isn't. And, 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 and then you're sort of like, how did we get here? Like there's a positive sum trade to do if you just used our rest endpoint for PNL. So like, why, why are we where we are? And like, you know, what's going on? And I don't know, there's a lot of answers and some of it's just communicating is hard. Some of its externalities, like they don't give a shit if we have to work and like we don't give a shit if they have to work. I don't really think that, but there's like a little bit of that. So we're trying to, you know, but I think part of it also is sort of like, well, what are you selecting for? You're selecting for people who could 
do something great if only they had exchange infrastructure but don't have exchange infrastructure like there's some selection for people who can't do it and then you're like why couldn't they do it or hire someone to do it and now you're like oh i see like whatever is stopping that might stop this too you know like are we sure this is solving their actual problem their problem might not have been that they didn't have a matching engine their problem might have been that their management had no idea how what to like what they need to do to build a, a system that can provide you know like like the problem may have come way earlier than that and um and so then you're like okay so what where does it make sense and like what you're left with is just like the most natural white label thing is just like kind of narrow slice of like sharp really reasonable on the ball and like savvy enough to kind of know what they need and don't need but like not experts at building an exchange because then they would just build it themselves i think that's where you see a place like hero come in right like they sort of had enough context on this process that they just like had real instincts on all this you know and they're like yeah obviously we don't need like fucking you know websocket pnl like we can just whatever query rest as much as we need or like calculate our end or whatever but didn't didn't actually have like a matching engine it seemed daunting to build a whole exchange product and so you're actually kind of like selecting for like you know, not that wide of a slice of of sort of companies that are going to be like good to work with on something like this, but also want a partner. So someone like uh, the Pareto principle, right? Is that twenty uh, percent yeah. are going to waste eighty percent of your time, and uh, and, exactly. and vice versa. So, but I mean. I just don't see the CEOs of a lot of it. I, I can't see like Arthur jumping in an opportunity like that. Maybe I'm wrong. But <laughs> that that is another thing. It's just like it, it's sort of like, you know, you have to get like you have both sides have to be flexible. You know, it's messy. And you have to like find a way to make it work and you have to be like not too protective and and you have to be like a little adventurous. And you know, that's not how a lot of companies work. Yeah. Speaking of Arthur. Um, obviously, I mean, we've sort of seen what happened with BitMEX, right? Yep. I don't know if he's on the lam at this point, who's been arrested, but, uh, it's not a pretty picture over there. How, right. how much, I mean, I'm sure you're doing everything right, but how much like is the fear or, or dealing with regulation and the changing regulatory environment and the yeah. varying regulatory environment from country to country, how much, you know, sleep do you lose at night? If you get any, anyways, do you worry about like remaining compliant and making sure that everything yeah. you do is, it seems like you would need more lawyers than uh, employees. It's a really good question. And I've served two responses to that. The first is that like, you definitely don't want more lawyers and employees. Like if you have too many lawyers, that's terrible. And the reason is that like, it's not like you have a regulation question. So you go to a lawyer and then they give you the regulation answer and then you solve your regulation problem. Like, you get a 12 lawyers and you hear 12 answers yeah. and you're like, are you guys just not agree? Right. It's sort of like, they just don't agree with each other. And it's like, ah, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. Now it's like, you're definitely going to jail. And it's like, I don't even know what to do now. You guys just con like, you guys are the experts. You just contradict each other. I don't even know how to proceed with this. Like, I like, that's not how experts are supposed to work. And, and it's sort of like, what's step two there, you know, like step two can't be start implementing suggestions if they're contradictory. And, and so like, really step one was a problem and there's just it's I mean, it's a pain but you have to try really really hard to find the right people and find the people who will give you the right answers and give you the answers which have like 
the right context, the right knowledge, the right instincts, the right calibration, people who are willing to express their uncertainty, like it's really like the, the, the thing that you hear a lawyer say the least, but that's like, a, I find often a good sign. It's like, look, I see like, I don't know what the answer here is for sure. Um, it's like, honestly, it could go either way. My best guess is that this is the way that's going to go. And I think that it's going to, but I think there's some chance it goes the other way. And I think it's like actually a, a pretty non-trivial chance. And so I wouldn't do this thing because I think that's just too big of a risk given what I think the odds are. You know, a sentence like that is just like so not what you're used to hearing from a lawyer, right? And it just like violates so many things that lawyers are supposed to do. First of all, you're not supposed to, uh, you, you know, you're not supposed to say you don't know the law. Even if there's, even if the law is unclear, you know, you're kind of supposed to have an answer. Second of all, you're always supposed to be conservative. You're never supposed to like, suggest that your client could do something when you don't know the answer for sure third of all um i you know you're like it's sort of like it's just like this very different way of thinking than like make sure you don't have liability here as a lawyer to your client you know um and uh but it's what you need because frankly when when the answer is it's unclear you need to hear that like you need to hear that it's unclear because if you hear it's clear in either direction, you're going to fuck up. So that's the first thing is just like being really honest and realistic with yourself. And like, and, and there's these other things which are just like people are loath to say, but they just really matter, which are like, you know, a lot of these things, like people try and think of it in terms of like, this is the line, like, like these are the things you can't, like they, they try and think of it in terms of like succinct definitions that classify things that are okay and not okay. And that's not how it really works. Like everyone in the legal world understands that like the laws can't exactly explicitly cover everything that could possibly happen. And there's always some amount of trying to read between them and figure out what they kind of basically mean. And that like, you know, there's like a big difference between like, look, I mean, this is kind of unclear, but like, yeah, that's basically what we're going for there. Like, this is, you know, maybe we'll give some feedback on it, but like, that's basically fine. And like, oh, come on, dude, like, what the fuck? Like, I understand you're trying to claim you have this technicality, like, this is obviously fucking bullshit. And this is egregious. Like, this is exactly the thing we want to stop. And it's like, in exactly the way we want to stop it. And it's like way bigger than we're comfortable with. And like, you know, your sort of excuse is not worth a whole lot here. And, and this sort of sense of like, um, and you really get this sense also if you read some of the, uh, you know, some of the things that the government files in these cases, you read through them and you see Paris like, oh, come on, dude, really? This is what you did? Come on, you know? And, and Paris like, you can't fucking do that. You know you can't do that. Everyone knows you can't do that. We told you you couldn't do that. And you did it again. Right. Like, so do, it's a do you think we're not going to file this? Like... So, so it's a difference between like a brazen, you know, breaking a law that they know that exists and at least looking like you're, you know, making your best faith effort to be compliant. Exactly. It's like, yeah, we don't know exactly how to interpret some laws in some cases because they weren't written with this in mind. Like you can, you can take a guess, you know? And, and, and so I think that's like, that, that's one piece. Is, and, and then another side of this is like the goal, really the goal is not to lose, is to stay up late instead of losing sleep so to speak, like the goal is not to be shocked to have done your homework and done whatever you need to do to get yourself in a position where you know where you are, you know, 
and where you're comfortable with where you are. And that might need to change. Regulations change, and then you need to change, and that happens. But like, um, you know, it's sort of like I, you shouldn't be surprised by things. You shouldn't be shocked by things, you know? Like, you shouldn't be like, where the fuck did that come from? And, and if you are, then you should either you got very unlucky or she'd ask yourself whether you were really thinking about this right, you know? And, and you should like feel like you're in a pretty decent position. Like, look, is there a chance a regular reaches out? There is, but I've sort of thought hard about this. I'm pretty sure if they do, they're going to say like, hey, here's like either a thing we want your advice on or like here's some feedback for you. We're thinking about how we interpret this you know, provision with respect to you. And they're like, oh, thanks for alerting us. Let's have a conversation here about like what, you know, what you feel comfortable with, what you don't. And, 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 and like, you know, if instead it's, if the first conversation you have is like extremely harsh and they're just like, all right, we're filing tomorrow. Like something went wrong a long time ago. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I, I love that. I, I love that. I've never heard that quote that, you know, stay, stay up late at night rather than losing sleep. It makes so much sense. Yeah. Basically just get ahead of it, be prepared for anything. And then you're, you're ready exactly. to pivot. Yeah. And you know, you can't prepare for everything in the world, but there are some sets of things that you want to at least be prepared to be prepared for, and at least know how prepared you are and make sure that you're prepared enough that if things change and you need to deal with it more, you're going to be able like, make sure you can get, you know, yeah. Make sure that, that you don't like all of a sudden wake up and you're fucked and there's no way you can get out of it. Yeah. So interesting. So I have to ask you because everybody asked me to ask you the Biden donation. <laughs> yeah. What was the motivation be, behind that? Um, yeah. So uh, there is, I, I'm, I, I sort of, I'm a little hesitant to talk about like politics proper in some senses. You and do I think not the reason, have to talk about politics is, for sure. You know, obviously with friends I do, but you know, to some extent, like as you know, I think it's important that like, you know, the, uh, my business is not political and, and, and that's like, you know, uh, that side of me is not the same side of me as a business. And, and, um, but one thing that I think I will say, and that I think is like kind of really interesting and powerful and surprising is, um, what's the scale of money in politics? How much money matters? And, and, and I think there's like a, a really big input to questions like this, right? Like, like there's like, are you just flushing my, like, is there any point in ever donating right. politics? Right. And I think a lot of people just like, obviously know there's so much money, so much lobbying. Like, it's like, like, that's just a waste. Like there's no chance you're going to have any impact, no chance you're going to change anything, change anyone's mind, anything like that. And I think it's sort of a lazy answer. Um, I think it's like really worth putting yourself through the thought experiment and doing the math. And the math's weird. So like how much money is spent? Well, let's go back four years when it's even weirder. Like how much money was spent on the 2016 presidential election per candidate? I, I don't, like, I don't the know the actual part? number, but uh, what, a few, your hundred guess million, few hundred million dollars, pushing a billion, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, yeah, about a billion dollars. Bill, billion was a about billion. the answer. Yeah, billion. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the right ballpark um, per candidate. Um, is that a lot or a little? Um, I don't know. What's the way to, to ballpark it? How much does the president matter? Um, I, I don't know what that means. Like, I, I don't even know if right. I'm like talking there about like how's it much matter who they are, how much does it matter, what happens with them, what what they choose. Like, 
but yeah, like, and how much does it matter that it's them ver- or the other person? Not right. even how much does that individual matter, but what's the relative difference between the yeah. two of them? There's a lot of things this is missing, but let's even just ignore that for now. And just say like, let's get a ballpark here, right? To see where we're coming from. And like, what's one way to ballpark the importance of the office of the presidency in some sort of abstract sense? Um, I don't know. I mean, this is not the, a great way to do it, but it gets you the right something. It's like, what's the federal budget? You know, like, and I don't know, president has like, whatever, you know, 20% impact on the federal budget. Right. Also, they do a lot. That's not the federal budget. So maybe you think it's the size of the federal budget is like kind of order of magnitude. Sure. But like importance of the office of presidency, whatever. Just trying to get orders of magnitude here. What's the federal budget nowadays? It's like 5 trillion. Yeah. <laughs> so not, not, not diminishing any times. <laughs> that's right. Now it's certainly only going one way there. And, you know, it's four years, that's $20 trillion per term. And now you're sort of like, all right, so like the order of magnitude of the importance of the office is like $20 trillion. The order of magnitude of the amount of money spent per, well, total, let's say in the general election, between the two major party right. candidates, $2 billion. Yeah. And now like, all right, $2 billion, $20 trillion, it's a factor of 10,000 different. Like, it's sort of like, uh, like, is that a lot to spend? Or is that like not? It's nothing. It's, it's nothing, nothing when you think of it in relative terms. Yeah, it's just fucking nothing. And so now all of a sudden you're like, wait, you're telling me that like there's like a billion dollars influencing $10 trillion. And it's sort of like, what gives? And yeah, that's just the answer, I think. What gives? Yeah. <laughs> like there's no, there's no gotcha. And and, and and you're sort of like, okay, well, Warren Buffett, like, how how is he, he's got more, like, how is he not finding something to do with money here, right? With, like, a lot of money, like, a billion dollars. I just don't know. I don't think there's a good answer to that. It's just a mistake. I mean, like, like well, and, and, which, I think, which makes, like, Bloomberg's, like, run so interesting, you know. It makes somebody. it so interesting. It puts in a really new light. And you're sort of like, oh, wait. Actually, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, yeah. well, talk about like, leverage, <laughs> right? And then you think about like how much did he spend in the leverage, <laughs> exactly. billion dollars. You know, how much did he spend in the general election? I think it's like a hundred million dollars or something, right? Yeah. And you're still like, oh, yeah, that's a real amount. That's like all of a sudden the sort of amount you might expect a really rich person to spend on an election, given the sort of like trillions of dollars at stake. You know? Yeah. And you're still like, well, like- how about everyone else? Yeah, it sounds like you did a casual five million dollar experiment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, that and I, I sort of like my my response is like, this is so fucking embarrassing for the rest of the world. How was I number two? Like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> I should not be number. I should be number like, you know, a thousand. Like, where's everyone else? You know, you were number two when you gave the obviously when you gave the donation. Right, it was no, just I, the amount that you wanted to give. It wasn't relative yeah, to anybody else's. That's right. And then it's sort of like, like, geez, like you're telling me that like there's like you know, thousands of thousands of people who have massively more than me who like couldn't think of any, anything that they thought would be relevant here. Like with the money, they're never going to find anything to do with. And I think sort of just think the answer is like, like, I don't know. There's this, this cool post on, on Slate Start Codex, which is just a riff on this, which points out that the amount of money that Americans spend on politics is less than the amount that they uh, spend on almonds. <laughs> and it sort of just gets at like, you know, okay, like when you really put it in, in perspective, like which should we be devoting more of our budgets to like 
political campaigning or almonds. And it's sort of like, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's almonds. <laughs> $5 million to make buy a lot of almonds. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? As you do that Maybe next day, it's just like people get to the American. office one day and it's just like you're just swimming through almonds. <laughs> The uh, Scrooge McDuck, like in his uh, gold vault yeah. uh, of, of, of almonds. And, I mean, we're, we're, I know we're up against it here, so I'm going to go ahead and call it. We could talk, I feel like, for three or yeah. four hours. This is so incredibly uh, interesting to me. And, and it's funny just to finalize that point. I mean, you can, you can see why you're such a good trader. And and the reason that other people aren't giving more money is because they don't have a trading or quant background like you do, and they yeah. and they and they've never uh, done the mental gymnastics to yeah. to that point, which seems very obvious when I hear you articulate it, but not something I would have ever thought of. And I mean, it seemed like ridiculous to me until I did the math, and it's like, holy shit, is that how the math works out? And I just like spent like twenty hours like going over and like, am I missing something here? I just came away feeling like, no, I'm not. <laughs> it's just how it works. Next time I'm looking for your billion dollar donation, then really, uh, up the, uh, I don't know who it'll, who it'll be packing. Well, but, uh, I certainly hope that they take uh, FTT. I hope so too, uh, in, in your case and because I supported the same guy. So no, no problems there. Uh, so where, where can everybody keep up with you and follow you after this? Yeah, I mean, I, I spend uh, way too much of my life on Twitter. So that that's... You know, SPF on Twitter, yeah. that, that's sort of the answer. But you, whatever, FTX.com will, will be a decent place to go as well. So Awesome, man. Well, once again, thank you so much. I, I'm really glad. Like, uh, we, I think we touched on a lot of things that you haven't uh, spoken about yeah. so thoroughly in, in other uh, podcasts. I'm glad we got to have that different conversation. And for me, as a trader, I just really found it incredibly oh, thank interesting you. and eye-opening. I, so. I had a lot of fun. Awesome. So well, thank you so much. Uh, and since I have like four more hours of uh, questions, we can do this again, hopefully down the road another Sounds time. Sounds good. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. That's dope.